Before we start today's show, I could really use your help with something. As you know, Master Brewers is an association run by some of the hardest working folks in the brewing industry. They all have jobs, but also serve the association as volunteers in lots of different ways. I need your help filling a volunteer role that, in my opinion, is one of the simplest but most important jobs. It's super easy, doesn't take much time at all, but is critical to the value of membership and to this podcast. If you're willing to help me out and give back to this incredible association, please take a minute to go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group to learn more. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. I think you can never really make a perfect malt. Uh, You can only make a better malt. The bottom line is... Whatever is in the finished wort going to the fermenter should be relatively consistent, whether it's the fermentable sugars, the proteins, the amino acid, and all those should be consistent so that the beer is relatively consistent. This week on the show, our friend Dr. Yin returns to discuss his new malt book and the 2021 barley crop. Hi, this is Xiang uh, Yin. I'm the Vice President for Corporate Quality and Innovation at the Raw Corporation based in Minnesota, USA. Dr. Yin, we're going to talk about your malt book, about the 2021 crop, and probably some other topics as well. But first, I'd love to hear about how and when you first became interested in the malting process. Oh, uh, John, this is a, a long story. Um, I, I've been working all my career in the molting industry. Um, I actually grew up in the countryside in China, and then I, I did see the barley growing all over the place, and then they look beautiful. And however, when you make bread from it, or just for 
basic staple food, uh, it did not taste as good as the bread from the wheat. And I always wondered, what can we do with this baoli that looks so good? And at that time, there were very limited amount of baoli going to brewing in China because there were less than 10 breweries all over the country. Um, so not it, it wasn't until I went to university, I started to look at uh, brewing and then started brewing and then i really got the inspiration that inspiration that um brewing is really fascinating and you can start from bali you can make great beverages from it and then uh, continuous with my study i got to study in uh, the university of uh, the heritage water university in edinburgh and where they were doing brewing and molting and was very scientifically based and was located in the heart of brewing and also distilling and lots of fascinating um, plants and products were around it. So just got to love it. And then after that, I really started to find a job uh, to work in the molting and brewing industry. So the rest is history. Yours certainly isn't the only book written about malt. Tell us what's different or special about your book and why you decided to write it. Uh, yeah, I wanted to thank actually the ASBC for initiating this request. Um, and then when the ASBC approached me and I thought, well, that's really a good idea because there are some uh, textbook style type of uh, molting books out there. And there are also uh, mold books that was written by uh, industry peers uh, with the observation reflection of the industry. Um, but one thing I thought that was missing was to bridge what was already in those books and, and also um, the current learnings and uh, uh, all the data that is out there so we can connect the quality of mold to the brewing process, fermentation process, and beer quality from a scientific perspective. So I thought there was quite a gap there. And also with my own personal research experience, um, particularly through the change of different companies, I thought it would be really good to collect all those learnings and then publish it and share with everybody who is interested in learning the science of uh, molding and, and how they impact brewing. So that's how it got started. And looking back now, yes, all the other books were published um, like a decade ago. So we did need some uh, update and bridge the learnings over the last decade so that um, people who are working in the molding industry, the brewing industry, or anybody doing the research can really have some sort of um, all-in-one uh, place to search for uh, the work we have done and also how much we have extended the general concept of molding beyond the malt house into the brewery, into the beer uh, on the market, for example, till to the point that the consumer actually appreciate the beer. And readers can expect to see, you know, charts and graphs from much of the research you've, you've done over your career, right? Yeah, that's right. So in the book, uh, I really trying to make things relatively brief and didn't really deep down into the, uh, the deep science, like, um, the molecule structure, etc. But, um, 
instead, I present a lot of the uh, practical observations from some of the benchtop work or pilot brewing or pilot molding work. So there were 168 figures and then 70 tables. Um, also, I tried to include the background information of those statements in the references. So there were 420 references. Um, so if people wanted to go in a little bit deeper to learn the details, and then they can follow the signs, I mean, uh, the, the uh, references, and then they can go into the deep signs into it. So I, I think it's just uh, generally, um, if you run into a, a regular crop year, you don't really think about molds that much. It's just routine operation. But if there's something changed with the crop, um, it's, it's like the, the terroir of the grapes also. I mean, you talk about uh, the year the grapes or the variety was, was produced for the, for the wine, etc. I mean, we don't talk a lot about varieties and year of barley, but uh, it does have very similar impact to the quality of the mold, therefore the beer too. So if something goes wrong in the brewery, yeah, um, the brewers say, oh, it must be the mold. Um, I, I think sure enough, yes, because the majority of the extract in the world is coming from mold. So uh, fairly so, I think um, they, they should be thinking about mold. It's also reflecting how critical mold is. Yeah, if everything goes well, malt is fine. It's just one of those ingredients out there. But if something goes wrong, yeah, malt could probably um, be one of the major um, sources that the brewers would look into. So by understanding the principles behind um, the the malt, malt quality and malt operations and how they impact the brewing process, I think it helps. Um, the brewer to look at the malt supply and then the brewing um, processes and how they can optimize the process to get the best out from the malt. Who would you say that this book is really for? I think it's for a broad scope of, a re uh, of uh, readers um, because there is some uh, biochemistry, microbiology behind the operations. So that will be good for the researchers um, and for the breeders to know, okay, how their breeding results would impact the, the molting process, the beer process and beer quality. So good for the breeders and for the researchers, but also good for the molsters because there are some brewing operation, uh, molting operations um, and it illustrates that there how the uh, temperature, how the airflow setting would affect the quality of mold and how the temperature setting, particularly for finishing the molding process, would impact the enzyme system, the color, um, and also more importantly, flavor stability of the beer as well. So I, I think it's, it's good for the practitioners in the molding and brewing industry, and also for people who are trying to appreciate the beer on the beer flavor profiles, how the malt quality and malt types are impacting the malt quality, uh, the beer quality. Uh, yes, malt quality too, but also very importantly, the beer flavor stability. So if you're handling beer in the trade, I think it's important to understand how malt it's impacting the beer flavor stability as well. I also had a chapter there that's related to um, the application of sprouted grains 
in the food and beverage industry because there is growing um, interest in the food and beverage industry that they find that uh, interesting because, I mean, you think about sprouted grain, you're turning the grain, which is probably you think of as a source of carbohydrate, to a little plant, which could be vegetable. I mean, you have totally different image for vegetable from grain for nutrition, etc. And indeed, the vitamins and antioxidants and all those would develop during germination. So there's a good potential space for us to explore together for the whole supply chain to the potential application of sprouted grains in the beverage and food industry. Very good. You, you almost answered my, my next question uh, for me. Um, I was going to ask you, because I, I do think that's one of the things that's that's unique about this book is that you've devoted an entire chapter to, to sprouted grains for food and beverage applications. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what readers can expect to learn about there? Uh, yes, I think it's very much related to the trend that people like natural food. I mean, molting process is a natural process. You just use water and air and a little bit of temperature. Preacher, and and there you are. That's the product, and then to, it will give you the grain that is uh, tasting much cleaner because you do the washing, like steeping process, to get rid of the dust and earthy notes. And some of them could be um, potentially astringent notes, etc. And then you start to germinate, and then you produce a little bit of the um, sugars. That degraded, that is degraded product from starch also. And that is a natural sugar rather than the added sugar into your ingredients. And then if you look at the proteins, um, the proteins are partially degraded to amino acids, which is much better a nutrient source um, for, for food and it will add more flavor. And then if you talk about digestibility, etc., a lot of the long-chain, high-molecular weight um, polysaccharides, polysaccharides like uh, beta-glucans or pantosins, they are, they are probably too large in molecular weight for, uh, for the good nutrition value. But once you partially degrade it, it becomes soluble dietary fiber and it might function much better. So all those are good nutritional aspects people can really benefit from. And also not just that, but um, the taste and flavor of the product like bread also made from the sprouted grain is going to, to be much better. So I think that's a new area um, the, the monsters can certainly explore together with uh, the food process and food manufacturers. And also, in addition, uh, there are different grains out there. We talk about some of them are ancient grains, and we need to explore those. And the moment you germinate those, then uh, the nutritional value suddenly changes, and uh, you can really highlight the impact of those ancient grains to your food product, whether it's flavor or the nutrients. Or just the story, like, for example, um, some of the people who grow Kernza, that's like a perennial type of wheat grass. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it serves as a good cover crop for the winter. It's good for the soil preservation. And uh, also, it's, it's good for the diversity of the grains. And uh, it tastes great in the, in the food 
or even in the beverage. So those are some of the examples that you can see. Spouted the, the um, rice, for example, it helps with uh, development of um, gluten-free food or beverages. How are you seeing brewers utilize non-traditional sprouted grains uh, to produce innovative products? Are you seeing much interest there? I do, uh, particularly now with the booming of some of the new products out there, um, like a gluten-free product, uh, like we mentioned. Yeah, you can sprout rice, for example, or a pure oat product. Um, but also, I think it's for different type of product development, like now juicy hazy type of uh, IPAs, uh, they can take some non-traditionally germinated grains into their recipe, and uh, then they can produce a fantastic beer because they don't have to worry about the clarity of the beer. So, for example, if you include a high-protein germinated or sprouted oat in this recipe, you will probably see much better haze stability. And that's a good example how you can leverage the diversity of this. And then you don't have to germinate the oats all the way through like you would do with barley malt. You can just germinate it to the degree you want. Therefore, you still have the macromolecules like the polysaccharides and proteins to give you the haze type of stability. But the molecular weight of those are small enough they can keep in the solution or in the beer for much longer. So that's that's another example, John. Yeah. You've also dedicated an entire chapter to microflora. Do you want to say anything about that? Uh, yes, I think there's a, a lot of uh, observations and study into that. And the impact could be quite immense. Quite often, we think about negative impact like uh, mycotoxin production, uh, gushing, or um, PYF, uh, that's a premature yeast flocculation because of the fungal load on the body. And I mean, that, that makes perfect sense because when they attack or infect the grain, the grain has a natural response to um, immune itself to those type of uh, fungal attack. But it just happened that yeast is a type of fungi. Therefore, yeast might be also sensitive to those type of um, antifungal uh, reagent that is secreted from the body or the interaction between the body, um, the husks, and the fungi. So, therefore, we see factors that would be um, affecting yeast performance, and that's really behind the principle for yeast folliculation. But um, it could uh, also, I mean, the fungi could also secrete those uh, hydrophobins for producing gushing because they act as nuclei for CO2 accumulation in the package of the beers. And of course, the, the mycotoxin could be a concern. But those, those things we know quite a bit already. And in the book, I, I did uh, summarize some of the updated um, remedies or analysis or diagnostic method for those type of issues. But I think there could be also beneficial aspect we could leverage from that. I mean, you think about uh, uh, flow molting and uh, uh, modern 
pneumatic type of molting. And people say, well, flow molting seems to give different type of um, um, flavor in the, in the mold. I mean, it could well be because the microflora on the flow molting process on the grain, it's really acting differently. We know that they produce different type of um, um, amino acids, but also like esters and all sorts of organic acids. And they could react with uh, different type of alcohol to form esters, etc. So there's some work into it. Therefore, um, in the flavor profile investigation chapter, you see how um, different molting process could potentially impact the flavor compounds on the mold. I think that's very important for us to understand that. Um, I mean, scientifically, it the microflora on the body can also produce various sort of enzymes. Um, beta-glucanase or hemicellulase, for example, because they have to degrade the material in the husks and to get into nutrients in the grain. And these enzymes could also react on beta-glucans, for example. Therefore, they affect the beta-glucan degradation process. And there's some literature um, indicating yeah, how the microflora might impact the amount of soluble beta-glucans. So all those are very critical information for us to learn, therefore to understand how we leverage that or control that so we can control the behavior of the mold. But also we can uh, leverage, if there's any benefit, the, the microflora can bring to us, whether it is the flavor stability or flavor profile or um, the process um, efficiency as well because of the enzyme package that could be related to the microflora from the body. Dr. Yin, what would you say are the biggest advances in malt and malting that are covered in your book but not found in previous works on the topic? Well, I think there's some uh, interesting work that is going into the exploration of um, the pasting behavior of of the malt or the grain uh, through RVA, Rapid Visco Analyzer. Um, that is really a very fascinating tool. You can, it's basically like uh, accelerated mashing process. You prepare a paste and then you accelerate the temperature of the paste from 50 degrees C to 90 degrees C and you see how the, um, the profile for the viscosity change of each mold and, and how they uh, will go up and come down. That is in correlation with how the starch would genetilize and then would come down as the starch granules burst. And you can see that um, as your modification of the mold goes up and then this peak viscosity values will come down. And also um, different varieties um, it might be because of the packing of the endosperm um, that, that is different in uh, the RVA profiles. I think this is quite insightful, particularly if you're using unmolted grains and they could have very different impact to your uh, mashing and loutering process because the different genetilization profiles and therefore viscosity profiles in the world. 
And then there's also quite a bit of work um, explored um, about the precursors from the mold that might affect the beer flavor stability. And those could be from different mechanisms. Um, one is, for example, the better and the stowed pathway, that's lipid degradation pathway, because lipid is degraded between fatty acid and fatty acid is oxidized and degraded into some aldehydes. And lipooxygenase, for example, is one of um, the uh, enzymes that people studied quite a bit for the formation of trans now that produces a papery note in the beer eventually. Um, and also other pathways like the striker degradation pathway uh, for amino acid to form aldehydes. Um, because in the fresh beer, and particularly if it's all malt beer, um, it could be tasting well balanced and very nice. But um, the issue is once the beer is packaged, even without a lot of oxygen in the packaged beer, and this amino acid could go through striker degradation and produce uh, quite a bit of the uh, um, flavor-active aldehyde. Uh, methionine, uh, the amino acid, for example, can turn into methionol, and that gives you the cooked potato note, for example. It doesn't need a lot. And those are some of the mechanisms we sometimes we don't quite pay much attention to produce, uh, when, particularly when we produce all malt beer, um, because I think we think we are following some of the traditional recipe, but because of the total protein in the beer is different, uh, therefore, I mean, total residual amino acid is different from some of the traditionally made, particularly in the old world, in the old world beers. Therefore, um, the flavor stability might be different. And also some of the efforts in the um, thermal load impact from whether it's from the malt or from the wort boiling to the beer flavor stability as well. And uh, ESR um, or, or EPR could be a very good measurement because you would be able to see how the thermal load is impacting the free radical formation in the wood, and therefore they can impact the flavor stability of the beers as well. So some of those, I think, could be very interesting um, insights if people wanted to study further and then trying to um, reach higher hanging fruit um, to, to get more perfect beer produced for the consumers. And you also get into topics that readers might not expect to find in a in a malting book uh, like neural networks and machine learning and you know artificial intelligence do you want to say anything about um some of those advancements i sure i think it's very exciting nowadays because of development not for just the technologies in the malting and brewing industry but in adjacent or even in the remote industries and uh, because of those uh, a lot of those ideal situation for utilizing machine machine learning and AI to help humans to make decisions um, for molting process. Um, for example, we know how uh, your laundry, if you're hanging, hanging out your laundry outside um, dry with 
different weather situations. If it's humid and, and high temperature out there, the laundry dries much slower. Similarly, in the molting process, if we run into uh, humid weather, and then the grain would dry much slower. Therefore, it's remaining in the kiln for longer time, and therefore you have more color formation and other issues, and you need to adjust the airflow, etc., according to um, your observation. And this could be very weather-related. But if we have a way of measuring how the grain is responding to that, and therefore um, the, the process would automatically adjust that. That's just the example. The other example is in germination, we know the grain is, um, it's breathing. So it breathes out CO2, but also at the same time, microflora is active. They release different type of organic acid, etc. So you, you can think about the malt house as a big headspace sampler. So the air on top of the germination bed would give you very good indication of what's going on in the kernels in the, the malt house. And by analyzing the composition of that air in the germination malt house, and then you'll be able to say, okay, uh, what's the uh, activity of metabolism in the grain and the microflora reaction, etc., and CO2 production rates, etc. And then you can make decision to say, okay, is this time to turn the germinating body into the kiln? And nowadays with remote sensors and uh, uh, portable GCMS analyzer, you can take a sample of that air and you can make quick feedback loop and make quick decisions. So all of those could uh, could make things like uh, um, molting and beside the palm trees, for example, uh, possible because we know uh, if you build a malt house in the tropical area, it's very difficult to operate because the relative high humidity, high temperature. So not many people would build a malt house beside the palm trees there. But now if we have all those technology in place, it may become possible for us to do those. And also with industry 4.0 technologies, we can really have the machine learning in place and all those props in place and, and implement all those software. Uh, I think it's becoming much better. Of course, it's not going to replace molsters overnight. Molting is still quite a bit of a blend of art and science. I think the, the, the science and technology part is it's science we prove it's working, but the art si side is still, I think it's still science. We, we still need to prove it's working or we still need to understand that science behind. But until the point we understand those, we still call them art. So it, it, we still need to balance that. And then we need the, the actual human being to make the final decision there. But machine learning and AI implementation could really help us tremendously to modernize the uh, the malt house operation and then of course in the field there's the drone technology for serving the crop quality uh, microflora load therefore mycotoxin load potentially protein uh, contents etc i think those could be very good future technology for our body selection well advanced before even harvesting 
And also at the end of uh, the process, I think whether it's the effluent treatment or it's the sustainability part, how we utilize the heat residual heating, how we dry the mold in a more uniform way. I mean, there are different way of thinking. Um, so we do not have to follow the conventional configuration of a conventional mold house. Uh, like deep bed uh, kilning, for example, that has a in, that has a gradient for temperature or the color formation in the green bed, for example. So all those areas, I think, are the areas for us to explore and uh, implement innovation to it. So I'm quite excited. This is a traditional industry, but I think there's a lot of room for us to innovate. Coming up, you want to try to keep the base mold at relatively low color. You have much lower free radicals if you use a low color base mold and you adjust the color with caramel mold. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. Support for this episode comes from Hop Solutions by BSG. The Hop Solutions portfolio is a joint effort between the brewers, hop specialists, and brewing scientists of BSG and the RAR Technical Center that takes a flavor-first, application-specific approach to hops. Whether you're seeking biotransformation in a juicy IPA or dialing in a classic West Coast profile, BSG has a hop solution for that. Get in touch with the hop nerds at BSG at Let's Talk Hops at bsgcraft.com for samples, spots, and contracts. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. But the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. 
If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets at Tumbled Rock Brewery and Kitchen May 19th. District Northwest meets May 20th and 21st in beautiful Hood River. District Philly meets at Other Half Brewing May 20th. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal May 24th. Don't miss the Master Brewers webinar, How Will Climate Change Affect the Brewing Industry? May 31st. District St. Louis meets at Urban Chestnut Midtown June 2nd. Lab on the Cheap, another Master Brewers webinar June 8th. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. At the beginning, I said we'd we'd talk about the 2021 crop, which has been a hot topic for obvious reasons. Uh, I guess it's probably a good thing you got the book published before you had to deal with the 2021 (laughs) barley. Anyway, I want to talk about 2021, but one last question before I do. You've got more than three decades of experience in this field. What are some of the largest challenges you've encountered in malting thus far? Well, I think... uh John, every day is, is a challenge because I think you can never really make a perfect mold. Uh, you can only make a better mold um, because regardless how good the crop is, you think about um, the barley there, you're, you're storing the barley for a year until the new crop comes down. And during this uh, whole year of barley storage, um, the viability, the dormancy factor, etc., of the barley, um, all will change a little bit uh, by a little bit every day. So every day is a challenge. You need to um, you need to listen to the barley, and you need to therefore adjust your process parameters. So that's one side one side of the excitement. The other side of the excitement is the ever increasing demand from the uh, uh, customers, whether the customers is the brewer or the consumers. I mean, um, there are always ways of doing innovation um, in the molting process to make the right product. So as the brewers are now talking about better efficiency, uh, better economic output, and etc., and better process control, um, they like your mold to be within a very, very narrow range of quality parameters. In another word, the specification for the mold uh, is it's very relatively narrow. So, I mean, if you think you start from the barley and you target that mold to fit that spec at the end of the day, it's not an easy job for the molsters to do. Um, Therefore, there's there's challenge every day there, and then from the consumers, um, they wanted hazy beer, they wanted clear beer, they wanted more multi beer, uh, yeah, deep, deep color, etc., and more stable beer. 
And they wanted to have beer of different styles from Europe, from traditional grain or from modern grain. I think we, we have to explore all those possibilities. And, and also from the breeder's perspective, they may find a very high yielding grain good with disease resistance. However, we need to know uh, are they performing to the quality standard and are they going to brew well in the malt house, in the brewery? And we need to work with the breeders and producers to, to make sure they do well and then provide information or guidance to the brewers. Therefore, we in the malt plant, we don't just say, okay, analyze the malt. And therefore, uh, voila, that's the COA, the certificate of analysis. Um, we need to understand better how they brew in the brewery and, and uh, how they ferment and how the beer tastes and how they hold with the foam stability, beer sta- uh, colloidal stability and flavor stability, etc. Um, before we say, okay, confidently, we really recommend this for your style type of beer, uh, Mr. Brewer. So I think the amount of work we, we uh, are challenged is, is huge. I think like last year, we were short of the supply because of the drought. We can go into that in a little bit more details later. And then that's really a availability issue. Some of the monsters may have to deal with foreign barley. Um, I mean, they are proven to be molting quality barley from other continents also, but uh, it's certainly behaving differently in the malt house than the North American type of barley. And then uh, for normally managing with uh, uh, the uh, microflora load, like the viability of fusarium, that's a type of field fungi, normally um, you could store the barley for a few months. Therefore, uh, field fungi would die and then there may be some storage fungi taking over in the storage, but then you will see a much safer um, control on the production of any potential mycotoxins because the field fungi w- would have died after a certain time of storage. But in some years, if you have a shortage and the next year when the fresh crop comes, you would have to germinate it right away. So you need to find the ways of uh, uh, mitigating the viability of the field fungi. And that's some of the uh, work and uh, the book presented for potential ways of mitigating that type of uh, field fungi and the viability of them. So uh, I think the challenges are ongoing all the times. Um, normally, we don't think about it. We just think, oh, we just turn the body into germinated grain. But no, to make a, 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 the perfect mold, uh, you need a lot of work behind the, the product. I'm not sure what percentage of the 2021 crop you've you've already processed. I, I imagine you're you're pretty well through it at this point. But I'd imagine that with any challenging crop, you're a monster, as you've indicated, does a lot of learning and ongoing optimization. Do you have any key takeaways or maybe success stories from navigating what was one of the century's worst barley harvests? Yes, I think the last year crop was a big challenge for North American monsters um, because the 
One is the quality that was different um, in in terms of, for example, the plumpness and uh, protein content, particularly on the protein content. You may be seeing by an average uh, a percent higher or so. As a result, um, you would be producing less fermentable extract. Um, that's one part on the quality side. And then on the um, supply side, it's, it's much shorter uh, available volume than the usual years. So uh, we would have to have access to other bodies we, we don't normally have access to, and then trying to learn how to mold those uh, to produce the best mold. Um, Fortunately, we have um, micro-molting and pilot molting processes in place. I think a lot of the molsters have that. So they can do some process optimization at a relatively small scale before they put in the large mold house and process the commercial batches. Um, as far as the quality are concerned, uh, we also measure uh, other parameters like yeah, how is the genitalization temperature and how is the pasting um, profile through the RVA measurements, etc. And amazingly, actually, we do not we do not see a lot of differences in the quality. Um, so I do not expect brewers would see a lot of differences. I think um, managing with the protein. Solubilization is, is a challenge. Once you have that dialed in, I think the quality is relatively reasonable. Um, yeah, you would see a little bit decrease in extract value, maybe 1% or so. Um, but I mean, that's all the, that's the, what the grain is producing to us. We can do a lot about it. Um, if the brewer is using adjunct brewing, like the mainstream lager brewers, I don't see really a lot of negative aspects because they would have probably good supply of uh, free amino nitrogen um, because of the high protein uh, for their yeast nutrients. And they will have quite a bit of um, protein produced for the foam stability and, and uh, head retention. Um, and then I think they, by using uh, adjuncts, they can manage with the colloidal stability relatively well. I think um, for all malt brewers, uh, they would certainly need to pay attention to the protein um, contents in the wort and then um, trying to manage that with uh, the adjustment in proteolysis stage if they have any. and also a good boiling process to coagulate any high molecular weight proteins there before you send that to the fermentation tanks. And then maybe if you're producing high clarity beer, trying to remove any uh, chill haze type of protein potentially. Um, but uh, other than that, I think it will be fine. I think for those molsters who introduce some mold from other continent, whether it's the southern hemisphere like Australian or Argentinian mold, they natural even European mold, they naturally have a little bit lower protein and they are mostly proven molting body varieties. And they could be actually producing a good uh, blending mold to balance the protein content. So uh, I don't see that as a big concern either. I think the challenge is the new crop 
if the new crop comes in time, in good quantities, um, I think we'll be fine. But if we have an issue with weather, whether it's too dry or too wet, I think we'll, we'll face some challenges how to connect um, in the, uh, the autumn to, from old crop to new crop. So we definitely don't want the brewers to run the brewery dry. So we need to have the fresh crop coming in and ready to hit ground running. Um, therefore, we, we wish the crop will be coming off clean and uh, in good quality. That's what we are praying for, John. Absolutely. Yeah. Not much left to blend with. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if you're, um, let's talk about fan a little bit more, because as you, as you just alluded to, you know, it's not going to be a problem for the large scale brewers because they're, they're trying to increase their fan levels um, since they're um, have a deficit with all the adjunct. But for the craft brewers, as we know, and as anyone who reads your book will know that, you know, too much of fan, uh, too much fan uh, in a craft beer is not necessarily a good thing. Um, so, how are you seeing um, uh, uh, craft brewers deal with increased fan levels or um, maybe reading between the lines, it sounds like possibly you're mitigating a lot of that concern for them in the malt house by being able to um, potentially give uh, provide them with a blend of, um, of, of malt, uh, European malt or something like that, that might um, offset um, the North American malt with the higher fan levels. Is, um, is that the, the best, is that the approach you've taken so far or is there, um, is there anything you're seeing brewers do to mitigate it on their end as well? Yes, I think there are many stages a brewer can control the fan level. Um, I think probably some brewers are aware, um, some European all-malt brewers, they send their beer all over the world and they don't really have such uh, a st- flavor stability issue as obvious. Um, I think they really put a lot of effort in controlling the fan level. I mean, what really speaks here, John, is the the fan level that in the wort that goes to the fermenter. And before that, that's when you can control the fan level. And therefore, in the malt house, you control the protein level to start with in the barley. And then you control the degree of proteolysis during germination. So that is measured normally by um, the Kolbach index or the S over T value. And, and then in the malt house, again, is whether you use proteolysis. Most of the craft brewers don't. And then whether you really intensively boil the wood to coagulate high molecular with the proteins also. And then I think the, the, the key part is that, yes, in the malt, you can have a balanced fan level by either use a lower protein one or you can use a relatively low um, Kolbach or S over T malt. But sometimes a, a very interesting indic- indication is the color of the malt as well, because that has two, uh, two meanings. That one is the amino acid, the other is the thermal load. And either of those would be beneficial for the flavor stability of uh, all malt beer. If you have high color malt, base malt, normally your proteolysis is a little bit high. Therefore, you have good color reaction. Or you apply quite a bit of heat. Therefore, you formed color through uh, Maillard reaction. That also means you formed the thermal load on the malt. 
and either of those would be uh, very good for the flavor stability because they produce precursors for flavor instability compounds. Um, through the measurement of ESR, um, I was able to learn that you want to try to keep the base mold at relatively low color. If you want to increase the color of your wort or the beer, then you probably want to adjust that with a small amount of color mold, like caramel mold, instead of having the base mold for high color, high proteolysis, high protein, high FAN, because then you have much better control because you have much, for the same color, you have much lower free radicals if you use a low color base mold and you adjust the color with caramel mold. So that's just some of the learnings. Um, but in North America, we got what we have, the barley. And I mean, um, the barley varieties that was originally bred for adjunct brewing. So we just need to work together. But I think one thing that is very promising, the breeders here are now able to master some modern breeding technologies, um, whether it's the genomic type of approach or maybe in the near future, um, CRISPR type of technology. They are able to produce low-soluble um, protein, low-proteolysis low type of variety still um, with relatively low beta-glucan in the mold. And I think that's a big progress. I would think in a few years, there may be varieties out there on the market that are very similar to European varieties. Therefore, we have a different type of um, um, genomics in, different, in the body varieties that can re really go to the adjunct type of mold very nicely or the all mold type of European style type of um, beer very nicely. So we could have the options either to use them alone or, or to blend. So I'm quite excited about that. What do you get asked about the most and what are some of the biggest lessons you've watched brewers learn from processing the 2021 crop? I think it's it's uh, the regular uh, questions on lautering on the extract yield, and then sometimes they because they use blend also, and they don't immediately see that, and they may say, okay, uh, what should we be anticipating with the new crop? Now we are almost halfway into the new crop. I think the brewers found, okay, it's probably less an issue than we thought. So uh, I do not expect major uh, challenges coming into the brewery, um, particularly if the brewers were working closely with their monsters in the transition. So um, yes, if you are very... Um, economical in the yield uh, and the process efficiency, you may see a little bit challenges there. Um, if you are a brewer who is very critical about uh, the clarity of the beer, sometimes you have a little bit slight invisible haze. It, you don't see it, but if you put on the instrument, you see a little bit higher than your spec, probably the upper level. Um, but I think to me, most of the brewers are very intelligent. They are able to manage with different um, process critical control points. Therefore, they, they're able to overcome that. So I think um, 
by working together uh, with all the stakeholders in the supply chain, I think we, we, we can learn how to manage with the variability in the crops. Because I think looking forward, uh, rather than saying every 10 years we have one year that is a bad crop, we may say <laughs> every 10 years there's one year that is a regular crop. So we need to be open with um, changes. So if some brewer said, okay, I never really changed my mashing regime um, with the temperature range by two degrees or so, if I do, I need to consult my top executives. I think we may have to look at that differently. Um, yeah, we may need to change that according to the nature of the crop that is presented to us. Therefore, the bottom line is whatever is in the finished world going to the fermenter should be relatively consistent, whether it's the fermentable sugars, the proteins, the amino acid, and all those should be consistent so that the beer is relatively consistent because the consumers don't really think much of, okay, you use 2021 crop, therefore I see this beer is different like they would do for wine. And they, they expect exactly the same. You can say each bottle of beer has a different story like a wine would. Each bottle of beer of your particular brand should taste the same every time, everywhere they get it. So that means our controlling point, it's the word compensation when that goes to the fermenter. And before that, we can work together to, to dial in for that critical point. That was Shang Yin here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a direct link to the Master Brewers bookstore, where members can grab a copy of Dr. Yin's book and save 10%. And while you're visiting mbaa.com, Consider registering for the 2022 Brewing Summit this August, where you can drink a beer with Dr. Yen and soak up a bunch of knowledge that will help you make better beer. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.